Well, good morning, Chapel family. So good to be here with you this morning. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts this morning. We're in a message series answering questions that you have asked. Today, there are two questions we're going to address this morning. And first, I'm going to ask this. Why are we here? Why are you here? Some of you might say, well, because my mom made me come. Maybe your wife drug you here. That really isn't the question. It's why are we here on earth? Why are, why are we here on earth and not in heaven? Now, that's not really either of the two questions that we're going to answer today later on, but it's an important question to answer because your answer to that question directly affects and direct, has direct bearing on the answer to the two questions that you've asked and we're going to address this morning. See, there's an awful lot of good things we can do in life. And there's some good answers to that question for us as Christians. Why are we here? We're here to serve God. We're here to worship God. We're here to love God. We're here to enjoy God and His good gifts. And those are good answers. Years ago, we had a speaker here at a missions conference who asked that question and he, he said this, he said, you know, but there's only one thing, there's only one answer of things that are good to do that we can do here better than we can do in heaven. All the other things we'll do better in heaven than we do here. We, we, will worship, we can worship God here, but we will worship God better in heaven. We can serve God here, but we'll serve God better in heaven. We can love God here, but we will love Him more in heaven. We can enjoy God here, but we will enjoy Him more in heaven. There's one thing that we can do that's good here that we cannot do in heaven. And that is we can't point people to Jesus Christ. We can't bring people to a saving understanding and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. We can't do that in heaven. We can only do that here on earth. And so it seems that the only reason that God has left us here on earth is to be witnesses for Him to those who do not know Him. Which ties in, of course, with the mission that Jesus left us to do. We saw last fall as we went through the first few chapters of the book of Acts that Jesus left us with a mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are to be Jesus' witnesses and we are to take it global. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the beginning of the Great Commission, Jesus says, Now go into all the world and make disciples. Or go into, go and make disciples of all nations. Some translations read. That's our mission. Now let's get to the first question. The first question we're going to answer this morning, some, some of you have asked, is this. What is a biblical response to Islam? 
We live in a world where radical militant Islam has declared war on the West and upon Christianity and upon Jews and upon all who do not follow Muhammad. Christians are persecuted by Hindus in India. They're persecuted by communists in China and Vietnam and in North Korea. But by far, the vast majority of persecution, the vast majority of violence, the vast majority of murder against Christians today comes from Islamic groups and Islamic governments. And so, what should be our thoughts? What should be our view? What should be our attitude towards Islam, towards Muslims, Islamic people as Christians? Well, we go back to why are we here? We just noted that our mission is to make disciples of all nations, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Well, last time, and by the way, that, that word nations there in the Greek is ethnos. It means peoples. We are to make disciples of all peoples. And the last time I checked, if we include all peoples, it would include all peoples including Muslims. And if our, if our mission is to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, then that would include the hard-to-reach places, the difficult places, the dangerous places, including the places where there are majority Muslims. See, what is the biblical response to Islam? Muslim people need Jesus. Because as we know, as the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 4, that great sermon that he preached, as the church was being born, he said, for there is no other name, as he was speaking to the, to the leaders who were trying to shut them down, and he said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no way anyone gets to heaven except through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we know that biblically that God loves Muslim people. John 3.16, the one verse most of us know by memory, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And we know the rest of the verse. But here's the point. God so loved the world. Who does the world include? Everybody in the world? That includes Muslims. Does God love Muslims? Absolutely. And it is God's desire for Muslims to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, God, our Savior, the end of verse 3, who desires, beginning in verse 4, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves the world. He sent His Son to be the Savior for the world, for any who will place their trust in Him. It is God's desire for all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth and place their trust in Jesus Christ. And no one can be saved apart from Jesus. So, we celebrate 
We celebrate efforts to take the Gospel to Muslim peoples. We really do not have a choice. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he speaks to us who know what it is. He says to fear the Lord. We understand the holy wrath of God against sin and sinners. We understand that there is an eternal judgment awaiting all who are sinners except those who place their trust in Jesus Christ whom God sent to pay the penalty of sin. We understand that. And Paul says on the basis of that, because we understand what it is to fear the Lord, the love of Christ, he says, compels us. It constrains us. He says in that chapter, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, that therefore we are His ambassadors. God sends us out to be His very voice to call people to be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. So we celebrate efforts to take the Gospel to Muslim peoples. That is why our church has partnered with a team reaching into the remote areas of the southern Philippines, reaching to an unreached people group there. Two weeks ago, if you were here, we gave a report from our, our team there on the Paradise Island there in the southern Philippines. We rejoice that today there are over a hundred adult believers on Paradise Island an island populated by Muslims. And we celebrate that. Despite hardships and opposition, the Gospel has taken root and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what God's desire is for all Muslim people. And so it should be ours. But as I've talked with believers, some of you over time, there comes the question, well, what about when it's We understand that God desires everyone to to come to faith in Christ, but what about when when it's dangerous, when some of these people we're trying to reach have no interest in the good news of Jesus? They say, no, and we don't want you here, and they decide they want to kill you if you try. Shouldn't we then just say, that's it, we're done? No, and we give up trying. Well, may I say that historically, most places in which people have tried to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, where it has not been, there has been opposition, there has been suffering and difficulty and hardships. Two hundred years ago, in Africa was called the white man's graveyard. But there were Christians who realized that there were also millions of people on the continent of Africa who did not know Jesus Christ and they had no witness of the Gospel there and they became determined to go to Africa. Many of them as they they left to go to Africa to share the good news of Jesus packed their belongings into coffins because they understood they would never come back. And there was a great harvest of believers in Africa Today, Africa, many parts of Africa are much more Christian than America. God loves all people, including Muslims. And we have a mission to take the gospel there, even when it's dangerous. I had you turn to the book of Acts. Turn to chapter 14, if you would. 
Paul and Barnabas here in chapter 14 are wrapping up their first missionary journey. They have traveled as far as they've gone. This is the first missionary journey ever for the church, for this fledgling church as it's beginning the book of Acts. They sent out their first missionaries. Paul and Barnabas left from Antioch. They've made it as far as they're going. Now they're, they're doing the trip in reverse, going back to the cities that they visited before on their way back to Antioch. And we find in verse 21, 22, they came back to some of the cities they had been before. And in particular here, they're coming to Lystra and Iconium. Verse 21, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and then to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Their message as they went back to these churches was, folks, until we get to heaven, it's going to be difficult serving Jesus. Hang in there. Keep the faith. There's a cost to serving Jesus and following Him. See, it was about two years earlier that the Apostle Paul had come through Iconium and Lystra. In Iconium, some of the, the leaders there in the town gathered together and they sought to, to grab Paul and Barnabas and have them stoned to death. But they failed. Paul and Barnabas went down the road to Lystra. There, Paul was drug out of town by an angry mob, stoned and left for dead. When the crowd left, God strengthened Paul. He stood up and he walked right back into town. Then he went down the road and told another town about Christ. And you go on and you read through the rest of, of that, through that whole account of that first missionary journey. And you go over to chapters 16 and 17 and 18. And you, receive, you read about Paul's second missionary journey. And what you realize is almost every place they went, there was opposition. There was persecution. There were beatings. There were imprisonments. And so this message in Acts 14 is very powerful as Paul goes to these very churches that watched the suffering and they, they understood the cost of following Jesus. And the message was, keep the faith. Don't give up. Keep serving Jesus. We don't get to the kingdom. We won't get to heaven without many hardships first here. It's going to be difficult. There's a cost to following Jesus and serving Him. And yet despite this, many in almost every town where Paul went, Paul and Barnabas, and later on the second journey, Paul and Silas, in almost every town they went, many, many folks came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You'll see the summary of their trip down in verse 27 here of chapter 14 when they got back to Antioch and they began to download. Here's what happened on our journey. Look at verse 27. They declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. Yeah, a lot of folks don't want to hear it. But God opened a door of faith. God did there in that first missionary journey and on the second missionary journey and then on through the history of the church, down through the centuries. 
As faithful men and women of God proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ, there was persecution, there was difficulty. But God then, as God is doing now, God has raised up believers where we least expect it. So keep the faith. Be faithful. Share the message. Because it's our mission. Because God loves people even in the most difficult places, even in the hardest places. He loves Muslim people. The love of Christ compels us to go. And God has prepared people who will respond to the good news of Jesus even in the hardest of places. And so, we take the Gospel even to Muslims. We don't hate them. They are the mission field. They are caught by Satan. They are caught in untruth. And they need the good news of Jesus. By the way, missiologists, those who study what is going on in missions around the world are telling us that more Muslim people have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last decade than in the last 13 centuries. God is moving among Muslim people in extraordinary ways today. And so while I listen to so many Christians who are becoming fearful of Islam, fearful of Muslims, We need to be praying and reaching all the more. They are caught in a system with no hope, that there's no assurance of salvation. It is all about works. There's little hope. There's great oppression. And they are seeing so much that they do not like and they are becoming disillusioned with Islam. And they are more open to the Gospel of Jesus than they have ever been. Church, do not be afraid. Let us be loving witnesses of Jesus Christ. But I get that most believers in this country, with with most believers in this country, the real question of Muslim and Islam is not really about the Islam out there. The big concern that I hear from people today is about Islam here. It's about Muslims who are coming here into our country and they're setting, putting down roots here and they're beginning to take over our country, which is a Christian country, and, and we get fearful. And so the issue of Islam often gets related to issues of immigration, which brings us to our second question. What is a biblical and a loving response to immigration. Immigration is a complex issue loaded with a minefield of potential controversies and only foolish pastors dare to tread there. So here I go. Obviously, we only have a short time and and this is such a complex thing, we cannot deal with anything in depth. And I will probably raise more questions than we will answer. And as we come to the Scriptures and we look for answers, we will not find direct revelation. We will not find specific answers about should we build a wall between the United States and Mexico? 
You won't find that one in Scripture. Nor to most of the other questions that we ask, you won't find direct answers like that. My aim isn't going to be to answer every question, but to remind us of the necessity for you and me to think biblically. To encourage you and me to think not on the basis of our fears, not on the basis of our feelings and our emotions, not on the basis of our prejudices or on the, on the basis of our selfish desires or on the opinions of the mainstream media or the, even Fox News for that matter, nor on what's trending on social media, nor even what some pastor over there says somewhere, but rather that we build our thinking based upon what God says in His Word through careful study and consideration of what does God say. We may not agree on every issue, but let our discussions always be seasoned with God's grace. Let our, let our motives always be rooted in desiring to live godly. And let our understanding always be framed and formed through the Word of God. So in the very little time that I have left this morning on this very complex issue, I would like for us to simply look at three relevant principles that we find here in Scripture that I think will help us to frame this debate, shall I say, discussion, this issue. Three scriptural principles. The first is this, the authority of government. You're in the book of Acts. Keep your finger there because we're going to come back to that. But flip over to the book of Romans chapter 13. Well-known passage about government. But I want us to think this morning a little bit of this from the issue of immigration. Because the question does come up, does the government have the right to restrict immigration? Does it have any responsibilities regarding immigration? Romans chapter 13, verse 1, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Skip down to verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And we could do a whole message on that passage and cover all kinds of things. But let me just help us to see four things that I think are pertinent to this issue from this passage. This passage informs us that, that governments rule by God's authority. And that God has delegated to governments the power of the sword for the purpose of protecting and caring for the citizens by restraining evil and encouraging good. Now, no government does this perfectly. Some governments are better than others. The point is that all governments 
have been given their authority, have been established by God for this purpose. To encourage good and discourage evil. There's certainly wicked people in this world, particularly among radical Islam today, who seek to harm people, innocent people, who seek to destroy and wipe out. And so, a government is not out of line, according to this passage in Scripture, to try to prevent such people from coming into their country and endangering their citizens. You could even say that a government in that case actually has a duty to offer such protection. And we can build similar legitimate arguments and cases for countries protecting their citizens from health hazards, from, from economic hazards, strains, drain, from lawlessness, and we could go on with different things. Therefore, we could say from this passage, if the government views certain immigrants or all immigrants as a threat at any particular time, it is within their rights, if not their duty, to limit or prohibit immigration. I think that's a biblical understanding of government. There's a second truth here, a second biblical reality that we need to understand that relates to immigration. Back here now to chapter 17 of the book of Acts. We were in 14, so just a couple of chapters over. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, beginning again the homeward sprint toward back at the, to the end of the journey. But he finds himself, because he's been kicked out of several cities, he finds himself in the city of Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up. And Paul does what he always does. He begins preaching. And he begins preaching in the synagogue. And then he starts daily preaching in the marketplace. And someone along the line is hearing him preach in the, in the marketplace. And uh, they invite him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the place where all the philosophers and the intellectual elites hang out and discuss philosophy type things. And they say, hey, come on up and talk to us. You've got something new we haven't heard. And so Paul gets up and begins to speak in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. We read just a snippet of what he has to say because it is profound and it has something to say about immigration. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is, not, yet he is actually not far from each of us. You say, Pastor, what does that have to do with anything? Four big points I want you to see in this passage. First, he says God is, God is sovereign. And he shows this in four different ways and four different aspects of this. God is the Creator. As the sovereign Creator God, He directs the affairs of men. The definition of sovereignty. That's verses 24 and 25. In verse 26, he says that He, God, made all men from one man. 
There's no place for superiority among men. There is no place for prejudice. We all share the same Creator. We all have a common ancestor. We are all connected to one another. It is one big human family from one ancestor made by one Creator. Thirdly, verse 26, God determines the movements of peoples. God determines where and when people should live where they do. Notice it says there that He has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Isn't that interesting? Why do people travel about? People travel about today for the same reason they did 2,000 years ago. Some people are in search of more prosperity. Some people are in search of more freedom. Some people are in search of just greener grass. Some are in search of adventure. Others move from one place to another because they are fleeing tyranny or they are fleeing poverty or they are fleeing problems. They are fleeing for their lives. They are fleeing from some natural disaster. Some people think that they are, they are moving from one place to another then based on their own choice. Others think that they are being forced to move by circumstances, by disasters, by, by evil people. And what Paul says is, guess what? People are moving all over this world because God is moving them. He sets the appointed boundaries and the times for when, where people live when they live. God is the great orchestrator, the great conductor who is moving the peoples of the world from one place to another. Now there's a short little lesson here for you and me as Christians. Because I sometimes hear Christians who are all in a panic about immigration. <gasps> there are people coming in and they're ruining our country. Do you believe in a sovereign God? Do you believe that God is sovereign in the affairs of men? Because the Scripture is pretty clear. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. And you know what that means? That means you can take off the name tag which says, I'm trying to run the world, I'm in charge. <laughs> and you can put it down and go, God's in charge. We don't have to worry about immigration or anything. Some of you need to hear that and stop worrying about everything. Relax. God is in charge. Now that's a lesson for us, but it's not the punchline. The punchline of this passage is the next verse. And you've got to see this. Verse 27 why is God doing this? Verse 26, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Verse 27, why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each of us. Here's what He says. God has a purpose in migration. And the purpose is salvation. God is moving people around and He has been from the early days that people were on the planet. 
Today, it just is at a breakneck speed. People are moving in, in, in quantities and numbers that has never happened before. But God is moving them for the purpose that they might seek Him and find Him. And so here is where immigration intersects our mission. Why are we here? To be His witnesses. To make disciples of all nations. Why is God moving people around all over the planet? So that they might find Him. Do you see that? You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to... We have to stop looking at everything in the world through the eyes of the world. We've got to take off the, the glasses of my agenda. We have to take off the glasses of my kingdom. We have to take off the glasses of politics. And as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we have to put on the glasses of mission. Because why are we here? We have a mission. And we have to, through the glasses of mission, look at the reality of immigration in the world today. I'm not discounting the role of government at all. I'm saying, what is your role and what is my role as believers in Jesus Christ? We're to be missionaries. And it's time for us to put on the glasses of mission and say, okay, God, we may not understand what you're doing in the world. We may not even like, we might not even like what you're doing in the world. But what is it that you're doing? And what is it you want us to do so that we cooperate with your plan to bring people to Jesus? And so whatever politically you think about immigration, God is working in it and through it, and we have to ask the question, what is how do we cooperate with Jesus to bring people to Himself? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. See, what God is doing is He's creating opportunity for people to seek Him and find Him. And the question comes to us is, what are we doing to take advantage of the opportunities? What are we doing to make the most of every opportunity that comes before us? I'm going to conclude with just three opportunities. I'm sure there are more that immigration is presenting to us right now. First, this one, compassion. We have a massive refugee crisis in the world today. I don't care what you think about how badly the governments are bungling trying to solve the problems. The reality is there are some 60 million people, 60 million people who are displaced from their homes because of wars, terrorism, violence, you, know, you name it, persecution, natural disasters. 60 million people who've had to leave their homes and are in deplorable situations. Refugee camps all around the world have five to ten times the number of people they can handle. 
People are living in squalor. Not because they chose to go find a better life, but because they are running for their lives. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have to have compassion. Scripture calls us all the way through. I had a couple of pages of Scriptures I'd love to share, but we don't have time to look at them. Just say, we've we got to care about folks who are suffering. Care for the needy. The situations are complex. There aren't simple answers. The needs are overwhelming. We ought to have compassion. On the mission side of this, this crisis has created unprecedented opportunities for the Gospel. We support a missionary couple, Bruce and Irene McAtee, serving in Greece. They went over there to be a part of a ministry reaching Greeks for Jesus Christ over the last 15 years it has turned into a, re- into a ministry to refugees as scores of refugees fleeing war and persecution come flooding through Greece and with, with no resources and they are destitute and they're desperate. And they find themselves ministering every week to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of refugees and they have opportunity to share Christ and they've seen hundreds come to faith in Jesus Christ. What can we do about a 60 million refugees and desperate things? Well, we can pray. We can give. We can help support the McAtees. We can help support any of a dozen great ministries that are out there working with refugees, helping physical needs and sharing Christ. They need financial support. We can also go. You want to go over to Greece and work with with the McAtees, they'll, they'll, they'd love to see you on a plane next week. They have needs. They're looking for volunteers, short-term volunteers. So are pretty much every organ, mission organization I know that's working with refugees. They need help. That's one opportunity. There's another opportunity. Your immigrant neighbor. I don't know your neighborhood exactly, but I would say that probably 75% at least of the neighborhoods represented here this morning, you've got an immigrant living somewhere in your neighborhood, somewhere around you. They may have come here for a short time to do some work with, uh, with General Motors or Toyota or some other corporation here, or they may be here permanently. But they have come from another place. They're here. They are away from family. They are away from friends. They are away from everything familiar. And they are here. And they are probably a bit disoriented. They are probably a bit just uh, rattled. And they're definitely lonely. There's huge opportunity to reach out and to build a relationship and to talk and to share a meal to demonstrate the love of Christ and to share the Gospel. You don't know any in your direct, directly in your neighborhood will just open your eyes and look around and you can find them. They're not far. A couple of months ago I was at a banquet and I was sitting next to a couple who we began to talk and they were telling me that about uh, two years ago they, they f- learned something that rocked their world. They heard that St. Louis has a population of Bosnians between 45,000 and 80,000 Bosnians 
immigrated here and resettled into the St. Louis area, mostly in the, in the 90s as they were escaping war and just awful stuff there. They've come here. Many of them don't speak English still. Most of them come from a Muslim background. This couple was shocked to realize that they exist here in our own city. They didn't know that. And they said, you know, somebody ought to be telling these people about Jesus. They said, we can do that. They started going down once a week. It just went down, It's in the whole Bevo Mill area is where most of them live. And they went down just to start having dinner once a week. And they would have dinner and start up conversations with people around them. And they began to develop friendships and get to know folks. And, and then they started having opportunities to share Christ. And they found this person became a believer and this person became a believer. And it began to, they started a Bible study and they realized one night a week isn't enough. So they started going down two nights a week. Then it became three nights a week. Then four nights a week. And then as we were talking, they said, we put our house on the market. We're moving down there. So we can have more time to meet with people and talk to them about Jesus. See, that's God's heart for immigrants. May God multiply people with that heart. They became foreign missionaries and never left Missouri. It can happen here. One more area where that can happen is with international students. Last year, I could find statistics was 2013. There were just over 800,000 international students who came here to study college and graduate studies in the United States. I checked on, on our local university, Lindenwood University. I looked on their website this week and I found that last year, there were roughly, this, this past year, roughly 1,100 international students at Lindenwood. They've come from all over the world to come here and study. Interesting thing about students, they've left all their family, they've left everything familiar, they've come to a new place. You know what? Most of them, they have no friends here, they're lonely. They've left family, they're hungry for relationship. They really want to, to, to experience American culture. They would like to understand American holidays, they would like to find out what American home cooking tastes like instead of dorm food. And so there are ministries like International Students Incorporated that reach to international students where they just help you meet an international student and become their friend and bring them to your house every once in a while. About a decade ago, a family befriended a young student from Japan brought them into their house, developed a relationship with them, loved them, shared Jesus with them. And she became a believer in Jesus Christ and today she's my daughter-in-law. And I'm so glad for that. See, immigration with mission glasses is a great opportunity and a great blessing to touch a world with the good news of Jesus Christ. The question is, what are we going to do about it? If, if we believe that we're just here to live in this world until Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven, and, and in the meantime... The whole thing is we're just supposed to try to make the most comfortable, the most prosperous, the most fun life we can have. If we think that's 
what we're supposed to be doing, if that's why God left us here, then well, go on with it. But that's not what the Scripture says. We're here for a purpose. And it changes everything. If we begin to look at our life and our world through those glasses. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being so selfish and we all are from time to time and we all look at the world through our the lens of ourselves and our agenda and our desires and our wishes and our wants and, and our plans and we forgot that we have a mission. And Lord, it's interesting for us to see that suddenly when we put on those glasses, it changes some of these things that are big deals in our culture. And they're big fears among so many folks. And we confess, Lord, we've let them become fears to us. We've let them become problems to us. And we fail to see that through Your lens of compassion and love for a lost world, what is here is opportunity. So Lord, change our thinking. But more than that, change our living. Help us to be what You have called us to be. To be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. To be witnesses for Him. In His name we pray. Amen.